Amen. It's good to see you tonight. God bless you. It's such a privilege to stand before you um, Wednesday, Sunday, anytime, anytime. So I, I just count this a privilege. And I wanted to warn you, we are going to use a lot of scripture tonight. <laughs> Does it, I don't really see it as a warning, but and, you know, we were uh, looking up some scriptures in, in the Iron Man, the Bible study. We do second and fourth Tuesdays in the crown room for, for guys. And um, <clears throat> we were looking up scripture up on our phones and I was getting a little frustrated because the phone doesn't move as fast as my fingers do in a paper Bible. I mean, it's just, it's funny how different technology is great, but they're not all the same, you know, so. But one great thing about being in here, you know, you, I, I, I encourage you if you have a U version or use a Bible on a tablet or a phone or you could bring your laptop in here and get online. But if you do that kind of thing, we do have it on the screen so you can follow along and you know, and if, if you want to keep up with Scripture, I'll, I'll be sure to quote, tell you what those references are, Carol, so you can keep track of that. And I, I value that and I appreciate that. Well, I'm wondering, how many of you have taught a child to drive? Anybody else? It's fun, isn't it? You know, as a youth pastor for all those years, I can't even count how many students I taught to drive. You know, and a lot of times it would be, you know, sometimes they didn't have a parent, you know, but sometimes I'd have a parent call me and say, can you please take my kid driving because I cannot stand it. I cannot do it, you know, and so there's a lot of times where I got, it, it, to me, it's fun, you know, it's exciting, as long as nobody gets hurt, you know, it's always fun, <laughs> and uh, so far, nobody's gotten hurt, but, but it's fun that that first time when you take them out, and you remember how you're on the road, and, and you're trying to get them to drive straight, <laughs> remember that, because they've all driven maybe a go-kart, or maybe a play car of some kind, but it is different when you sit in a real car, and when you try to go straight down the road, especially when you graduate from the parking lot to a road road, and you, it's, I don't care how many times you've done it, it's, you always forget there is a learning curve there. And the first time you get out on a real road or maybe even a bigger parking lot that has a road in it, you know, and that first time you're like, in my mind, I'm thinking, why can't you drive straight? Why is that so hard? But it is hard. At first, they, they just have this thing, you know, or remember how it is when you, you're trying to tell them to drive and, and they look at something and they veer, they, it's almost, you're connected. There's like a wire connected to your hands and your head and, and you got to teach them. You got to be able to look over your shoulder, check that, that blind spot without turning the car. Then you graduate to a little faster road. And then that first time you get on the freeway and I mean, those speeds, uh, <laughs> I, my, our daughter Grace is 15, and she's not in here, so I'll just tell you, but she's 15 and getting her permit. She's got a permit, and um, she was just asking, why does the freeway make mom so nervous? I said, really? You don't get that? We're going 65 miles an hour. Things happen in one second. I said, you're traveling a mile a second. She still didn't get it. Because a mile, I mean, you're just... So I said, okay, well, let's do this. So when we got back in our neighborhood, I showed her how long a mile was. I said, now, on the freeway, that would have taken a second. Do you get that? Oh, a minute. Yeah, thank you for the math. A minute. I mean, it's, it's not very long, and you've covered the space. I mean, bad things can happen. You know, we talked about, even though she's taken the test, you know, they don't really... They take the test, and the information's there. It's not really here. And I said, you're stopping distance. You cannot stop as quickly as you think. And, and I don't care what kind of car you're in, and then, of course, the surface of the road makes a difference, all of that. But I was remembering at times, you know, did anybody else do this? 
And now I, when I, the town I grew up in was a big city in a way. Um, we didn't have a lot of industry. We had, but I mean, we did have some industry, but it was, it was like a huge population. I mean, there's like 350,000 people and it's kind of like independence where you got so many people who live there. But, you know, back then and, the, you know, when I was learning to drive and driving and then when I had my license, you know, we did things that you would never do today. <laughs> Larry did things he would never do today either, I can tell. But I remember one time just because I could, it was late at night. I used to clean the church, so sometimes I would get out, you know, really late. There was no one on the road. I mean, you're down, down city streets. I did, this is wrong as can be, but I drove home the entire way seven miles in reverse. Anybody ever do that? Yes, thank you, Casey, because I could. But have you ever tried to drive straight and just use your mirrors? Anybody ever tried that, looking backward? That's impossible. I've tried it. Not, not, just, not to just prove anything. I've just tried it. You really can't do it. You cannot. Now, you can back up using your mirrors straight, but if you're trying to go forward and look backward, you really can't do it. I mean, you could do it a little ways, but eventually when you turn around, you're like, how did I get so off? Because you can't do it. That's just kind of the way how life is. And it's, it's funny, it's not only driving that's that way, but um, recently, not recently, a couple of years ago, Theo started mowing the lawn, my son. Do you, does anybody remember trying to get your kid to do straight lines? And, and <laughs> I know this is stupid, but it matters to me. You know, I don't want someone to drive up and see all these crazy lines. Just try to do it straight. So, and then the other thing is when you're mowing, I, I know this is, but it is, okay? You just want it done right. All right, so if you don't quite overlap the last, the last row, what happens? You got grass sticking up. Like, you know, your whole lawn is full of little mohawks. You don't want that. So I remember the first time he was mowing and I tried to explain this to him. I said, look, what you want to do is pick a spot and then make sure that tire overlaps the last, you know, your, your last track. But keep that spot ahead. You know, <laughs> I remember, you know, watching him and thinking, dang, he looks, he's drunk driving. You know, and it's, it's not, he wasn't trying, you know, he was trying, but it takes a minute to figure that out. And then the idea that you're going to focus far ahead, focus on that spot and you're going to get there. And even as an adult mode, I mean, there's times you're thinking, how did I mess this up? I thought I was paying attention, but at some point, maybe I looked there, was distracted or saw a weed or, and I do, I don't know if any of you do that as I'm mowing, I'm pulling weeds as I'm walking along and whatever. So, you know, there's times where you're kind of off a little bit, but the principle is it's the same thing in life that you can't go forward if you're looking backward. So I want to take you to a few portions of scripture that talk about this. This particular scripture here, Paul is writing to the church in Galatia. It's in Asia Minor. There was a few churches that he really poured a lot of time and effort into. This particular church, what had happened was he planted the church and then he left. And when he left, other Bible teachers came in and they, they tried to get the people to go back to Jewish traditions. He had already told them, you don't have to do that anymore. We're free of Jewish traditions. The Jewish law doesn't make you any more holy or spiritual or saved. You're saved by faith in Christ, and that's what's cleansed you from your sin. You don't have to do that. But then these other teachers came and taught them to go back. So here we pick it up. 
He says, before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? And he keeps going. You are trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. Perhaps all of my hard work with you was for nothing. I love how Paul does this. If you notice, if you read a lot of his writings, he gets personal. He does some things that we're not supposed to do when we're arguing. He uses those relationships and says, was all, it's kind of something you might hear your mom say, it's all my hard work for nothing. All that I've poured into you. He's using that relationship. He says, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things, for I have become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. What he's saying to them is you can't follow Jesus while you're looking to the past. And a lot of us do that. We look to the past and think about what it took then for us to be free, and we go back because it's easier. You realize it's easier. Let's, you can't follow Jesus and trust in religion to save you. I don't know if you realize this, but religion is easier because it's really clear. You just got to do this and this and this, and my heart doesn't have to be right. I just have to follow the rules. It's so easy to follow rules sometimes, isn't it? Now, of course, I'm, I know we're, sometimes we break the rules, but my point is it would be easier just to have a list of do's and don'ts than to say, follow Jesus with all your heart. If I could just bring a sacrifice, then do whatever I want. I mean... You can't do that. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't going to go there, but Pat said, Pat said, it's like going to confession, sin all day long, but as long as you can go to confession later. Dang, Pat, that was kind of mean. All right. Well, let's take a look at the Egyptians. I, I know the Galatians went, you know, were tempted to go back, but let's take for a minute, just look for a minute at the Jews. The Jews look back to Egypt. Now, I know you know the Bible story about how they followed, you know, Jacob took his whole family because of, you know, we talked about that even a few weeks ago. They were in captivity there in Egypt for 430 years. And we talked about this briefly last night in the men's, men's meeting, but it was a horrible life. It wasn't quite the same as the, the slavery that, you know, America had with black people, you know, uh, 100 years ago. It wasn't quite the same as that, but it still was slavery, they still were not free. Now, they did maintain an identity as a Jewish race. They did have their own homes. They had own, their own property. But they were in captivity. Generations came, born, died in captivity. No freedom. It was a horrible life. And then God raises Moses up as the deliverer. So let's jump into the book of Exodus for just a minute. It says, Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. The land where the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites now live. All of that. 
He says, look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. So Moses goes to Pharaoh. You know the story. Moses refuses. God sends plagues. He, he, the Israelites hurry up and leave. Pharaoh gives them permission. They hurry up and leave. They do the unleavened bread. You know, there's no time to wait for it to rise. They ask the Egyptians for gold, etc. And uh, the Bible says that, the, well, the estimates are 600,000 men are counted in leaving. So the estimates, if you add the women and children, they estimate that it's possibly around 2 million people. It's hard to even imagine. That's the population of the KC Metro, just so you know. And then it's kind of ironic. They did turn the tables on the Egyptians. They actually plundered the Egyptians by asking and getting the gold and then leaving. So Pharaoh finally lets them go. When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said, if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. I know we read that and you think, wait a minute, 430 years of slavery, they're finally free. Why would they want to go back? They just saw the plagues, 10 plagues. And the plagues, what, what was interesting about, I mean, there's so many interesting things about the plagues if you jump into them. But one interesting thing is the first few plagues affected all of the land. But then the last ones only affected the, the, the Egyptians and the Israelites were spared. Imagine those cartoons with the guy walking around with rain just on his head. That's what it was like. They saw this. How many of you have thought or maybe heard somebody who has said something like, well, if only, if only I saw a miracle, I would believe. I had a conversation with a guy today about things going on in his life. And um, <clears throat> as I was talking to him, I was thinking about this, and I almost said, do you want to go back to Egypt? You know what he said to me as we were talking? He said, I was just praying, God, can you please show me a sign? And I just laughed because he's a friend. And I mean, we've had some experience talking because I was able just to say, a sign, you know what you're doing is not right. <laughs> what do you need a sign for? Just open the book. It's in black and white. You know God doesn't need to tell you a sign to say, hey, go look at my other sign. I mean, it doesn't, it's kind of dumb. I mean, he knows. He knows better. The fact is, you could see 10, 10 plagues and still disobey God. I mean, the, the thing is, we look at the Egyptians and we think, why would they want to go back? But then we do the same thing. We go back, and we're tempted to go back. So getting back to um, New Testament for a minute, In the New Testament, Peter is scolding some of the people there, and what he's doing here is he's referring to these evil people who are drawing people back into sin. He calls them dried up springs. And here's here's the, the scripture, 2 Peter 2, 17, starting at verse 17. These people are as useless as dried up springs or as mist blown away by the wind. They are doomed to blackest darkness. They brag about themselves with empty, foolish boasting, with an appeal to twisted sexual desires. They lure back into sin those who have barely escaped from a lifestyle of deception. 
They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption. I'm going to stop there for a second. Does this sound familiar? When you hear this, does this remind you at all of what we see in the world today? People claim freedom all the time in their sin. And what they don't realize is they themselves are slaves to that sin. It's kind of like what we talked about last week. What you hold on to is holding on to you. The very thing they say they're free to do is actually holding them in slavery. And they don't see it. And the sin that they're talking about here, the horrible thing that Peter's referring to, is those same people lure and draw away those who have just escaped that sin. It happens all the time. You see it. You see the cycle go on and on. So Peter goes on. He says, for you are a slave to whatever controls you. You ever heard that before? You are a slave to whatever controls you. I love it when, when scripture's just, just so obvious. I mean, it's something you could, put a, you could put that a plaque on a wall anywhere about anything. It could be about food, for goodness sakes. It could be about anything, but you are a slave to whatever controls you. Whether it's a, a lustful desire like he alluded to in this scripture, or whether it's, whether it's you know, gossip, whatever it is that you're drawn into and that holds you back and pulls you back into sin. Whatever it is, you're a slave to whatever controls you. And when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they're worse off than before. You just pulled back, pulled right back into what you were doing. (laughs) It would be better if they had never known the way to righteousness than to know it and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. They prove the truth of this proverb. A dog returns to its vomit, and another says, a washed pig returns to the mud. I I think you were telling me, we were talking about this last week after the sermon, but... um, there was a pastor we had in Minnesota. He was, he was a funny pastor to work for because this guy was a genius, but like he couldn't change a tire. Like I got a call once. At, well, I was at my desk and, and the receptionist called and said, Pastor Dennis, could, could you go change Pastor Greg's tire? I'm like, uh, sure. Well, where's he at? And he goes, she goes, well, I don't know. I'm going to have to let you talk to him. I said, what do you mean? He goes, he doesn't know where he's at. <laughs> like this, was, this guy's a genius. I mean, I'm, I'm certifiable genius, but he didn't know. I said, well, You've never, I'm talking to him on the phone. You've never changed a tire? And he's like, no. He goes, how do they expect you to do that? I said, well, there's a jack and everything in your car. He goes, no way. (laughs) I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So I drove out there. I showed him. He goes, that's really cool. I'm like, yeah, it is. It's really cool. So, okay. But anyway, he had a son who had a pet rabbit. And um, just like a lot of pets that kids have, they want the pet so bad, right? But then after a while, they get bored with the pet. You know, and the rabbit's not cute anymore. I mean, I mean you, some of these rabbits get huge. This is one of those lop-eared rabbits. You know, I don't know what kind it is, but it was huge. It was like this long and this huge. Big old thing. And they're not... <laughs> Pat? Pat keeps saying stuff up here. He said they taste good, just so you know. All right, well, anyway, this huge rabbit. You know, and rabbits get mean. They're not like pet pets unless you really make them pets. 
I mean, the big old claws on those back feet and the strong legs, I mean, they can really do some damage. So what happened was he was struggling with his son. Look, you've got to take care of this. You've got to clean it. And they're messy, just like any animal, you know, and it stinks and it's horrible. And so finally he'd had enough. So he said, look, if you're tired with this rabbit, I'm, we're just going to let it go. And the kid's like, okay, fine. So dad's like, okay. You know, so he takes it into the backyard and opens the door to the little hutch. And, uh, you know, the rabbit kind of hops around and hops out. And he says, great. So he goes back in the house. Then a little while later, he said he thought, I'm going to go get that cage and clean it out and whatever. So he goes outside. Guess what? Rabbit's back in the hutch. He doesn't know any better. We're the same way. The scripture's so plain. We do the same thing. We have freedom laid out in front of us, but because we're so used to and trapped in our sin that we go back to it over and over and over again. The same, same thing. (laughs) He ended up having, I told him, just give it away to somebody. There'll be somebody who wants that, maybe to eat it. I don't know. That's horrible. I can't believe you said that. (laughs) So here's the answer to everything. Well, here, let me go on with the story. So back to the Jews. You know, the story is they, God is saying, I can't lead them the short way because they'll run and they'll want to go back to Egypt. So then Pharaoh realizes, oh, wait a minute. We don't have anybody to do our work for us anymore. So as Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked because the whole Egyptians, they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here and to die in the wilderness? Weren't, weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? Oh my goodness. Have, what have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. Wow. So how long did it take them to doubt God and turn back? Not very long. But before we look at them and think we're so high and mighty, and we do this, you know, we got the whole book right here and we see the end of the story and we see that they did this over and over and they get into the wilderness and there's no water and they tell Moses, why'd you bring us out here to die? And then God brings water from a rock. Then they want food, of course. Then he gives them manna. Then they want meat and he feeds them with quail. I mean, we see this cycle and so many times we look at them and we feel so spiritually superior, but we do the same things. I'll look at it like this. There's no easy button in the Christian life. Our life is the same way. And yet there's so many times where it's easier and we think, oh, this is too hard. God never told him life was going to be easy or there'd be no obstacles. And I apologize. If somebody told you that, that all you have to do is become a Christian and then it's easy street, I apologize because that's not true. That's not how it works. He doesn't remove all of our problems. What he does is he gets down and dirty and joins us in the middle of those things. And he shows us how to walk through them and he turns those problems into beautiful, beautiful things. That's what he does. That's what he does. Jesus Jesus himself actually promised us trouble. On the night he was betrayed in the book of John, you know, you've got the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first three books of the, of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar and kind of follow a similar pattern. Then the book of John, it's told from a different perspective and uh, very different. And he combines a lot of things and a lot of the, the, um, a lot of the book of John happens in the last week of Jesus' life. 
in his last time with the disciples, he, he gives them marching orders. He promises them heaven. In, in John chapter 15, he talks about the vine and the branches, which sounds amazing. You know, if you're connected to me, if you're in me, stay, abide in me, and you will grow and all of that. Then he ends with this. He said, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? He says, a slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. If they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all of this because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. There was no, he didn't, he didn't pull any punches there. He flat out told them, it's going to get rough, boys. Saddle up, buckle in, buckle down. We're in for a ride. So we as Christians, I think there's times where trouble comes or frustration comes, and we say, God, where are you? Why isn't this easier? I'm following you. Why can't we do this? God forbid, though, we would say, it was easier before I became a Christian. But the truth is, sometimes it is easier without being a Christian because you're just going with the flow. You're going with the world. Here's the key. When trouble comes, keep your focus on Jesus. When trouble comes, keep your focus on Jesus. Hebrews 12.1, I referred to this verse, I think, last week or the week before, and it talks about we're being surrounded by such a huge, huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. A lot of theologians have debated what this is. They've debated whether or not this is the church, the Christians that are around us, or if indeed it might be the saints who are already in heaven and somehow they have a heavenly view of what's happening here. We don't know about that. I mean, people guess about that, but we don't know. But here's the thing. We're surrounded by a huge crowd of witnesses, and he says, let us strip off the weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and then let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. But here's where it goes on. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated at the place of honor beside God's throne. And it it doesn't end there. He says, think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. We've got to keep our eyes on him because he suffered way more than we will suffer. But more importantly, he is the perfecter and the, the initiator of our faith. He is the one. We focus on him and run after him. How do you keep a straight line in your life? Just like you're driving, you focus on him. You don't take your eyes off of him. When you take your eyes off of him, the problems loom so large. But when you're focused on him, have you noticed how that works? As you're focusing, your periphery kind of blurs out. That's how our problems do, because you're focused on him. He is more important than all of those things. He endured hostility. We're going to endure hostility. And we'll never endure like what he endured. I like this too, how it talks about he endured because of the joy set before him. What do you think that was? I have a guess here. Redeeming us. 
Do you think the joy set before him was him saying, I can't wait to get back up on my throne like I was before I went to earth? That didn't matter to him. He, he laid all that down. Philippians 2 talks about how he, he willfully gave up all of that for us. Here's, you're right, Carol. The joy set before him is your salvation. It's hard to imagine that our God would focus on us, measly little humans like that. Measly little, in, ungrateful, sinning over and over again humans. But he does. He values us like that, that we're, we not only were worth saving, but the concept, the idea of saving us is joy. So even though he was going to endure pain to save us, it was worth that to him. I can't imagine that. Because to me, I look at it and I think, I'm not wor- I, I can't imagine saving me would bring him joy, but it does. That was the joy set before him. So the last point I want to make with you tonight is this. Not only is there a great cloud of witnesses that are observing us, again, I'm not sure what that is, but here's something I am sure about. You all have a great cloud of witnesses observing you. And, and there may be people you, uh, that's obvious to you, but not necessarily. It could be people that, you know, maybe your own children, maybe it's people around you, but you have a cloud of witnesses that are observing you constantly, constantly, constantly. Even in this own church, even in this church. Someone was bragging on, I didn't even get to finish telling you about that, Frank, but someone was bragging on you to me today. They were talking about you and about your demeanor and how you carry yourself. People watch all the time. Look at how that Hebrews 12 goes on later in the verse. It says, so take, this is the um, New Living Translation. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? That's so real. Take a new grip, a grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees and mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. There's a little on us that people are watching. So how do you do that? How do you get a grip? How do you do that? You focus on Jesus. You focus on Jesus no matter what else is happening. I like that, you know, because... Obviously, this is written, you know, in, you know, a long time ago in Greek, and then we translated it here to English. But how many times has somebody, you know, like you, maybe you've heard this saying where somebody's like falling apart and somebody says, get a grip, man. <laughs> get a new grip. Get a new grip and strengthen your weak knees and mark out a path. Dave, would you turn some music on for us tonight? I wanted to do something a little bit different tonight with our prayer time. I want to invite you to pray, but at the same time, I wanted to, I wanted to offer this because some people had mentioned it, but if you would like prayer for anything, I know that there's people in here who would love to pray for you. Um, we, have, we have prayer team members here. We have um, definitely elders who pray. So here's what I'd like us to do for a minute um, I would like, if you, if you would like prayer specifically for anything, for healing, for something like that, I would, I'd like to invite you up to pray. And I know I talked to Richard about helping us pray. Saw you come in. There you are. But anybody else, you know, board members, um, prayer team members, if you would just kind of come down and be available to pray. And I want to encourage you to pray. Now, it's early. It is 8.05. 
And I know that our, our kids' programs, you know, they're not really done till 8.30. So I want to encourage you not to grab kids yet because they've got, they've got things they've planned. And I know youth, you know, usually they go at least till 8.30. So we want to let them have their service. So I want to encourage you to take some time to pray on your own and get a grip. Mark out your straight path. But if you specifically would like prayer, you know, up front and have some people lay hands on you and pray, then I want us to take time and do that tonight. And, and if you're done praying, feel free to, you know, spend some time in the lobby and, you know, just, you know, fellowship and talk and hang out. So let's go to prayer right now. Let me pray for you and then, and then invite you to come for prayer if you'd like prayer. Father, I lift, I lift up everybody in this room. I can't imagine.